What's going on, you Philly? I'm really excited. Like, I'm, I'm kind of giddy right now because I'm so excited because this word, it's been in my heart actually for several years now. Uh, what I'm going to preach on, uh, I went to this retreat when I was a sophomore in college. And I was part of uh, Korea Campus Crusade for Christ, as you guys know. And uh, there's one speaker. His name was Pastor Key. I think Joel, maybe you might know him. I forget what church he pastors. But anyways, yeah, I went to this one uh, retreat. And yeah, just the message he spoke, it just bore witness in my heart so much that I still remember to this day. And whenever I read this passage, it just, yeah, I always see it in this light. So as even when I first came to New Philly, I was asking God, like, when do you want me to preach this? Even before I, I started preaching, I, I, this, this would have been a sermon that I would have preached on. But, uh, you know, the timing wasn't right and all these things. But let me tell you, the timing's right. The timing is tonight. And even as we're worshiping God and, and singing the praise songs, I just felt more confirmation. So I am excited. Church, are you excited? Yeah. All right. Let me just pray a quick prayer right now. Uh, bow your heads with me. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you that your presence is here. God, I just pray you open every heart and that you'll just speak to each person, Lord, in this room directly, Father. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, if you have your iPads, your iPhones, whatever you have, uh, Turn to John chapter 2, Gospel of John. If you're there, say amen. Amen. I'm just going to read this out. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, and now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, and the, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs... Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen? Amen. So let me just walk you through this passage real quick. So before this happened, Jesus didn't begin his ministry at all. So I just want to give you that background where Jesus didn't officially start his ministry at all. And if you look at chapter 1, what happens is Jesus meets John the Baptist. And what happens? He gets baptized, spirit descends upon him like a dove, and uh, you know, it's a beautiful picture, right? And after he meets John the Baptist, the next day he calls his first disciples, uh, Andrew and Simon Peter. And then the next day, which is the second day, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel. So when it starts down chapter 2, on the third day, that's, that's what the, when the wedding happens. And this wedding, Jesus' mother Mary, it's, she's serving there. We don't know what capacity exactly, but she's serving there. And not only is she there, but Jesus and her, his disciples are invited as well. So what happens, they go. And when the, one, when the wine runs out, Mary tells Jesus they have no wine. So in verse 4, Jesus replies, Woman, 
What does this have to do with me? And I'm kind of joking around, you know, with the woman thing, but I like the NIV version better where it says, dear woman, because Jesus, he wasn't a chauvinist male, just, you know, barking at women. You know, he he loved him. And it was his mom. He's not going to call his mom woman. If I call my mom woman, oh, no, I I don't even want to go there. But yeah, Jesus, you know, it was more like, hey, woman, what does this have to do with you? So, yeah. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. And in the Gospel of John, whenever, talk, whenever Jesus talks about the word hour, he's always talking about the crucifixion. It's pointing to the crucifixion. So he's saying, my time hasn't come. My time to do the work that you have sent me to do hasn't come yet. But Jesus still decides to help his mother. So what happens? The servants, they fill six stone jars with water to the brim. They deliver it to the master of the feast. He drinks it and he tells the bridegroom, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Then it says, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and then his disciples believed in him. When it says first sign here, it's saying Jesus didn't do any signs before this. It's kind of obvious, right? But, yeah, when, when it's saying that, it's saying that Jesus lived as an ordinary man his whole life. And he concealed his, his divine identity. He didn't reveal it at all. He, this was the very first sign that he did. And when he showed the sign, when he performed this miracle, the glory of God was manifested. The glory of Jesus as the sovereign creator and ruler of the material universe. And the glory of Jesus as the merciful God who provides abundantly for people's needs. This was the glory of God that was revealed that day. So I want to ask you guys, And I'm going to ask this question a couple times throughout the night. But why did Jesus choose to turn water into wine as his first miracle? I'm going to say it again. Why did Jesus choose to turn water into wine as the very first miracle? Yes, he did it to manifest his glory. But if you really think about it, he could have done that in any other way. So before I uh, get into that more, uh, let's just, I just want to give you a background on just weddings at the time. So let me just start off by saying, back then, people knew how to throw a wedding party. All right? People knew how to get down. It was like a new Philly wedding. Can I get an amen? You know, who's, who here has been at a new Philly wedding? All right, you, new Philly people know how to get down. And this is the joke I always love to tell. It's not really a joke, but you know who grew up in church when you're at the wedding. Not even at the wedding. I'm talking about the dance floor. And you know who, who kind of was backslidden? You know who grew up in the church? You know who was pagan? And it all comes out. You know, it all comes out. It's like you just see sides of people that, that you never saw before. You know, your small group leader, you didn't know he could go down like that. You know, that pastor, Marcus, you didn't know he could dance like that, you know? <laughs> and fortunately or unfortunately, weddings back then would put today's weddings to shame. Hear me out. So today, weddings, they last one day, like at the most, right? Like one whole day. But back then, they lasted several days. It was a party. You know what I'm saying? It was a wedding. Because they celebrated. And, and one thing that was really important, one thing that was in- essential to a wedding was alcohol. Mm, I heard some mm-hmm. All right. 
you know, if alcohol was essential, dry weddings did not exist. Man, if... (laughs) So, if your wedding back then only served, you know, some water and some some chill-sung cider or something, you know... No one would have come, all right? No one would have came. I know there's a lot of people bearing witness right now with what I'm saying, but again, alcohol was essential, but specifically wine was essential. So let me give you some background on wine. So back then, if they had a, a slogan or a motto, it would, it would be, no wine no equals no party. And actually the rabbinic teaching, what the rabbis taught at that time was, without wine, there's no joy. That was the general teaching of the rabbis. And even in the Old Testament, they generally viewed wine, but never drunkenness, as a sign of joy and as a sign of God's blessing. For example, in Psalm 104:15, it says, You cause wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine here is seen as a sign of joy. And in Proverbs chapter 3, 9 through 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Again, wine here is seen as a sign of blessing. And that's why in verse 6, it's saying there's all these water jars and they could hold up to 20 or 30 gallons. And it says these jars, they were used for ceremonial cleansing. They were used to, you know, wash your hands and wash your feet. You, you know, you could even wash your clothes in there. You do some pala in there, you know, and it was just so much water. And man, I remember when I went to Mexico, uh, when I was in high school, I went to Mexico mission trip and, you know, they didn't have running water. So we just had these huge uh, tubs where it's like as big, bigger than me. And uh, there's like a bunch of them, but that was what we used to brush our teeth, to wash our hair, to just wash up every day for a week. And we're like, man, that's so much water. Like it's almost unnecessary. Right. But man, we use so much water. Like, and, and, you know, granted, we're playing and throwing water at each other and throwing it in the girls' room. And, uh, anyways, uh, yeah, just, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, water. But, man, we use this so fast, and we use all that water to cleanse ourselves. In that same way, these, these waters, the, these jars that were used for ceremonial cleansing, there was so much water. So when Jesus turned water into wine, he was saying it's not just a blessing, but it's an abundant blessing. It's not water just to, you know, drink or just, you know, patch your face dry or something. But, no, it's water to cleanse, like, almost your whole body with. And back then, Jewish feasts or weddings, they absolutely required wine. Otherwise, it was considered a serious offense or assault. Insult, I'm sorry, not assault. It's not assault. Insult. Insult. So when wine ran out, the host was pretty much embarrassed. And Mary, in whatever capacity she served, she pretty much failed in proper hospitality. So let me ask again, why did Jesus choose to turn water into wine as his first miracle? And what's the point, or what's the purpose of a miracle? Uh, That's my next question to you. Uh, Every miracle Jesus performed and was recorded, it was to reveal what? His glory. Yes, it was his glory. Uh, and it was to reveal his power, but it didn't end there. Because if miracles were just to show his glory and just to show his power, you know, Jesus could have done anything. There would have been a lot, a, a big variety of miracles, right? 
Because think about it. If Man, Jesus, if he just wants to show some power while he's walking with his disciples, maybe he could just like start walking in the air or something, you know? <laughs> just to be like, hey, this miracle, I'm showing my power. I'm showing my glory. He could probably even do like backflips or just jumping jacks in the air or something, you know, just to show his power. You know, he, Jesus could have breathed some fire for all we know. He could have just done something to, to just show his power, you know? Like, why, why would you do it that certain way? And instead of cursing this tiny little fig tree, he could have made it look cooler and thrown like a lightning bolt or something. You know, there's, there's better and cooler ways to show his power. And man, if I had this power, oh, sorry, let me, let me take a moment right now. So, man, if I had this unlimited raw power, the first thing I'll do, I'll bring Philly cheesesteak to Korea. You know, my cheese whiz with onions, mushroom whiz with. Anyways, yeah, I'd bring cheesesteak. And man, if I had just raw power, man, I would, I would like control my stomach size so that I could be hungry for it more. Or, you know, just, just right before, you know, I could control it. I could even lower my cholesterol. And I could do all these things if I just wanted to show my power, you know. But that's why I'm not Jesus. And... But seriously, though, almost every time Jesus performed miracles, he had a deeper reason. When Jesus showed his power through miracles, it wasn't just raw power, but it was power with a redemptive reason. So when Jesus fed the 5,000, the redemptive reason was what? I'm your provider. You know, when Jesus healed the sick, he said, I am Jehovah Rapha, I am your healer. When he calmed the storm, he was telling his disciples, I'm your protector. When he casted out demons, he said, I'm your liberator. I'm the one who sets you free and keeps you free. And when Jesus turned water into wine, he was telling people that I'm the bringer of joy. Because when wine, it represented joy. And Jesus was saying, I am the one who brings you joy. But again, this still doesn't answer the question of why Jesus chose to turn water into wine as his first miracle. So let me give you a brief uh, history lesson to to illustrate my point. I love history. I almost studied it in college. It was like my favorite and only AP class in high school. Uh, yeah, I just, I just really like history because you can always learn from the past. You know, you learn not to repeat mistakes. And you also get to just see the story behind the accomplishments, right? So I just love history. So let me give you a brief history lesson. So for most of the 1930s, the U.S. was in the longest, most widespread, and deepest depression in the 20th century. Personal income, tax revenue, profits, and prices dropped. International trade plunged by more than 50%. 20,000 companies filed bankruptcy. 1,616 banks went bankrupt. And unemployment rose to 25%, which meant 20,000 people were laid off every day. And to top it off, there were 23,000 suicide deaths, and that was only in the first year. And in 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt became president in the middle of a time known as the Great Depression. And in his inaugural address, he told a nation in unprecedented despair that he would lead a presidency filled with hope through this famous quote. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And according to the study by Miller Center, 
FDR was able to pull the U.S. away from the brink of economic, social, and perhaps even political disaster and lay a formation for future stability and prosperity. So pretty much in a time when, man, your neighbors, they're committing suicide. You know, kids you grew up with in school, your coworkers, they're committing suicide. They're jumping off buildings. In a time when, you know, your cousin's family business just went bankrupt. In a time when your parents are just concerned on whether you're going to eat that night. In a time when all these people in the whole nation are in despair, Roosevelt tells the world that his presidency is going to be marked by hope. And in the same way, when Jesus performed this miracle of turning water into wine, he told the whole world that everything I do is going to be marked by joy. He said, every time I'm going to heal, it's marked by joy. Every time I set the captives free, every time I make the blind see, it's going to be marked by joy. Jesus was the most joy-filled person who ever walked the face of this earth. And that's why the first miracle was water into wine. That's good, right? Man. <laughs> and you may be asking yourself then, what does this joy really look like then? Does, that, does joy mean you just got to you know, smile all the time? With this robotic smile and you can't show certain emotions, you can't show weakness, you can't show sadness, grief, anything like that? Let me tell you right now that Jesus, he didn't look like Ned Flanders, okay? <laughs> Who knows? Anybody know Simpsons? All right, so Simpsons, I grew up on Simpsons, and there's this character. It was, his name was Ned Flanders, and he was this guy with a mustache, with uh, glasses, and he was a neighbor of uh, the main character, Homer. And he was known as the stereotype of a goody-two-shoe Christian, right? He was this Christian that... Everyone could just, like, say whatever to, and he would just take it. You know, he was this Christian that would never confront people. All he would say is, Oakley Doakley, you know? And he would just, just take this, and he would smile all the time. And it's funny, because you know, he was that guy that you could just borrow stuff from. And Homer had, like, all his stuff, like his grill, and it would say, like, property of Ned Flanders. But he would just have it, because he was that pushover Christian that would just smile in the corner, you know? Saying, Oakley Doakley. And... <laughs> Man, Jesus didn't look like that. Jesus was the most joyful person. He didn't look like Ned Flanders. Amen? And man, I remember a few years ago when I was just talking with some friends, and there's this joke, like, the most, the most, uh, the part where Christians look forward to the most in the week, it's on Sunday, not when they're in the presence of God, not when they're, you know, receiving the word, but it's when they pass out the bulletins. You know, it's like that's the most, that's like the, the, the highlight of their week almost because the image, especially of Western, uh, the Western world has of Christianity is like these kind of boring uh, Christians, you know, that don't really have a lot of joy. They're kind of lacking joy. And I know I'm preaching to the choir right now because New Philly, we have a lot of joy, amen? But yeah, what I'm saying is it's okay to show emotions. Joy doesn't mean you're smiling robotically all the time. Because Jesus, I'm pretty sure he wasn't smiling all the time. You know, he probably got hungry when he was in the wilderness for 40 days. I'm sure he wasn't smiling the whole time. You know, he got hungry. He, he wept. Jesus wept. You know, he felt emotion. He felt grief. He felt sorrow. And what else did he feel? He, he felt anger. He felt zeal. He was flipping tables saying, you know, my father's house is not a den of robbers, but it's a house of prayer. 
And he's flip, flipping tables, you know? And then he even told one of his disciples, he called him Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. You know, he, man, he, he experienced all kinds of emotions. And again, being joyful does not mean you don't experience other emotions. No, the joy Jesus had and that we're all called to have here, it's a joy that has a subterranean kind of quality to it. Subterranean. I'm not talking about Little Mermaid right now. But <laughs> subterranean as in there's places in this world where there's like rivers flowing. Y'all still laughing at Little Mermaid right now? What's going on? All right. So there's places in this world where there's rivers of just flowing water, flowing under the ground. And they just, they just go for miles and miles. I looked it up on National Geographic. And uh, no matter what's going on on the surface, the land is always healthy. The land is always fertile. Whether it's drought, whether it's pouring rain, the land is always lush, beautiful, it's healthy. It looks like the Lion King up in there, you know? It's Because there's a subterranean river. And in that same way, Jesus always had a flowing river of joy deep inside of him. No matter what was on the surface, he had this deep joy inside of him. And as Christians, we are marked with the same joy in all that we do. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. There's a reason why I'm preaching on joy tonight. If you're there, say amen. Amen. I still hear some paper moving. I'm going to read the first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The image Paul wants to paint here is of an epic race we're called to race to run. And this race, it's like the life that we're called to run. You know, it's just as we heard in the in the retreat, you know, it's not episodic. I didn't even know that was a word, but it's not episodic. You know, our walk with God, it's not supposed to be in episodes, but it's an ongoing thing. And in the same way, this is a picture that Paul is trying to paint right now. That when we run this race, it's, it's talking about our life pretty much. It's a race marked with an endurance. And let me get into that where it starts off by saying we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, the chapter is called By Faith. And it talks about all these heroes in the Old Testament. All these heroes of the faith. And when Paul's saying you're surrounded, that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. He's saying this cloud of witnesses is the heroes of the Old Testament faith. It's David, King David. You know, it's Abraham. It's Jacob. It's Joseph. It's Gideon. It's these mighty men and women of God that are surrounding us. And they're not just surrounding, looking at us. It's like the Olympics. It's like, no, no, better yet, it's like the World Cup. <laughs> Man, you know, you know what country everyone's from when, when the World Cup comes, you know, because everyone starts wearing you know, their colors and all that. And yeah, just like Korea, you know, when you see the Red Devils go out, you know, the Red Korean Devils go out. Man, we need a different name, but yeah, when, when you see them go out, they just cheer on, you know, in that same way, these Old Testament heroes of the faith, they're cheering for us. 
as we're running this race, no matter how fast or slow we're going, they're cheering for us. You know, they're like, like King David, he's got that Gatorade cup. He's like this, man. He's like, I got you, man. I got, or he'll just you know, pour it on you. Oh, snap. <laughs> he'll, just, he'll just pour it on you to, to refresh you, to encourage you, you know? And you, know, you got people like, you know, cheering for you with little banners. Like Abraham's like, yeah, that's my boy. You know, that's the kind of image. That's the kind of image, at least uh, the David on version that Paul is trying to paint. You have this cloud of witnesses in this epic race that we're called to run. And it says here that also to lay aside every weight and sin. And sin here, it's, it's synonymous with weight. It's seen as an impediment. And it's seen to be something to be discarded. You know, for example, you ever see swimmers who really get into it? What do they wear? They wear that, besides the Speedo, they wear the, they wear the, uh, the swimming cap, right? Because they can't have no friction, no drag. So, you know, they just swim like dolphins real fast. But it's, and part of it is because of those swimming caps, you know? And the people who are really serious, man, they shave the eyebrows. They go all out, you know? And that same way, lay aside every weight and the sin which easily clings onto you. You know, Paul is like, if he was telling a swimmer, he's saying, you know, shave that eyebrow off. <laughs> shave, that must, shave that nose hair off. Whatever it takes, you know, lay aside, lay it aside. Whatever that clings onto you, that weight, that unneeded weight, get rid of it. Throw away everything that hinders and when he says, let us run with endurance, this endurance, it's talking about a steady determination to keep going. And it's talking about to keep going regardless of the temptation to slow down or to give up. He's saying, steady endurance, be steadfast, keep going. And this word race, in the Greek, it actually means agon. And that's where we get the word agony from. So when Paul says race, He's pretty much saying it's a faith-filled life, but it's also denoting a demanding factor. There's like a grueling effort almost, agonizing. You know, it's, he's saying there's this element to it where it's not going to be that easy, but we're still called to go forward. We're called to endure. And talking about uh, agony or agonizing, uh, Pastor Je- uh, John Michael mentioned it where our whole church, we're really inspired these days to like, you know, wake up early and go running. And, uh, you know, it's been awesome. And I've been personally challenged too. And I've been running uh, here and there. And I, uh, I encouraged some of my friends too to run. And they're looking at me right now to not be called out. But, you know, some, some of my Hapjung friends, like Gina and Mary, who are turning bright red, and Daniel from Australia, you know, we're, I was saying, yo, let's go running. We need to run. And they got super excited. You know, Daniel came with like, his, his gear, you know, his running gear. And uh, Mary came with some baller shorts or something. And, yeah, we're just running. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, we're, we're going, and, and everyone feels good. Everyone feels good. And it's really good because it's beautiful. It's, it's at nighttime. It's nice and cool. There's a nice wind. You know, it's just blowing. And we're running, and we're like, all right, this is good. And in my head, I'm like, man, this is just a warm-up. You know, we're going we're gonna to go a little longer. And then I'm asking Gina. I'm like, Gina, how often do you normally run? And she says, I, oh, I run to that bridge, and, and I just go back. I'm like, oh, that's, that's not even halfway, but okay. And then we're, we're going. And I, I don't want to tell this to them. I don't want to discourage them, right, because, you know, we're, we're, just, we're going. And then we're running, and I, I just tell them, yeah, 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 let's go up the stairs now. Let's go up the stairs. And then we're on the bridge, and then I look back. I'm like, where are they? 
And and for those girls who will not be named, they they weren't they weren't running anymore. They were just walking up the stairs. <laughs> and they come up. But I'm encouraging them. I'm 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 pushing them forward, you know, I'm cheering on for them like the great cloud of witnesses. You know? I'm pouring, I'm pouring, you know, if I had some water, I would have done that. But you know, I'm encouraging them. And my goal was just to get them to the middle of the bridge. Because I knew that was the point where you couldn't turn back anymore. <laughs> I knew once I had them there, they couldn't go back because it would have been the same distance. So, but man, I could tell there was the agony. <laughs> the agon, you know, agony, the race was really, really uh, coming in. And I was just telling them, come on, man, you just got to, you know, second win, second win. And I think Daniel says something like, this is my seventh win. <laughs> just going. You know, and, and we're going and we keep going. And they're like, man, what? Like, where are you taking us? And I'm telling them, trust me, there's this beautiful place. And let me tell you, let me tell you something right now. I, I have this place called the Secret Island. It's not really a secret anymore, <laughs> especially since I'm telling y'all right now. But man, there's this secret island where it's beautiful. I'm not lying. The other day, I saw bunnies there, man. It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> Looks like Narnia over there, man. They have trees. They have grass. They have grass. That's hard to find in Seoul, you know. And you could have like a little picnic there. Man, if I was involved with Naomi, maybe I would have... Never mind, but uh, yeah. You know, it's really nice. They have like a botanical garden and a cafe and uh, like, a, like a greenhouse. Like, it's, it's pretty awesome there. And I was just telling them, guys, trust me, once you get to this island, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. And, and we just keep going. And we're almost at the island. But then to get to the island again, there's another set of stairs. And the same thing happens. You know, I, I look, oh, where'd they go? <laughs> And, and they're walking, and, you know, I hear, I hear Gina, you know, <laughs> huffing and puffing. I, I can't do this. You know, Mary's saying something, too. I can't understand. Daniel's like, Daniel's like, why did I eat that pasta an hour ago? You know, there's, <laughs> you know, we're just, we're just going. And they're, again, agon, the agony, agony. They're agonizing. But as we go, you know, we, we, we get to the island, and then, you know, one reason they were joyful was because we stopped running and we were walking. But another reason they were joyful was, man, they were just so happy to, to be. And they're like, I didn't know Seoul had places like this. You know, they're so, they're just so, yeah, taken back by the scenery. And for me, I mean, yeah, maybe I ran a couple times more than them, so it was easier for me to run. But it was easier for me to run, too, just because I knew what the island looked like. You know, I knew how beautiful it was. I knew I have my one little spot. It's like a little tea house with the, you know, with the um, Korean, I don't know, it looks like a Korean tea house where you, there's no walls, just pillars, and you can just sit there, take your shoes off, you know, sip some tea, and that's where I get my stretch on. Like, I knew, like, man, once I get to that place, oh, I'm going to feel the best stretch. You know, I, I knew what it looked like. You know, I had this image in front of me. And in that same way, or maybe not the same way, but in a similar way, yeah, Jesus, he knew what was in front of him. And I'll get into that, but let's move on to verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When it says we're looking to Jesus, it means we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. That he is the object of our faith. 
And when it says Jesus endured the cross, the cross, it represents the greatest suffering in history. It means not just the physical suffering, but it means God's just wrath. His wrath that he took upon himself. And next it says, despising the shame. And the shame that Paul's writing about here, it's, it's the shame of the crucifixion. Because when you got crucified, it wasn't a good thing. And there are two things that brought shame. One was it was done publicly. And secondly, you're pretty much naked. Jesus was despising the shame that came with the cross, that came with the crucifixion. You know, being, being beat to death, carrying that cross, being nailed on a cross. And, you know, you barely have any clothes on. You're, you're humiliated. You're getting spat on the face. That's the kind of shame that Jesus despised. But do you know why Jesus was able to endure the 39 lashes and thorns on his head? It's because of the joy that was set before him. Do you know why Jesus was able to endure the nails that were on his hands and his feet? It was because of the joy that was set before him. Jesus was able to endure the cross because of the joy that was set before him. And Jesus was able to conquer death and rise again because of the joy that was set before him. The joy Jesus saw before him was this. It was accomplishing the work of the cross. Because he was doing what he was sent to do. The joy was accomplishing the work of the cross. But it doesn't end there because Jesus knew that after the cross, it didn't, that wasn't it. He knew that he would be seated at the right hand of God. He knew that he would be with the Father. That was the greater joy. And he knew that by accomplishing the work of the cross, not only would he be with the Father, but he'd be with us and the Father. That was the greatest joy. That was what caused him to endure the cross. And when it says Jesus was despising the shame, it's another way of looking at it, but it meant he did this. It meant he took one look at us and the joy of being with us and being with the Father. And then he took one look at the cross and he said, that's nothing. He said, the cross, that's nothing. He said, Psh, that's, I, that's nothing. The joy that comes with being with the Father, the joy that comes with being with his children, the cross, that's nothing. So in the same way, when we run this race, I'm here to tell you tonight, we're supposed to do it with joy. Everything we learn at the retreat, when we're called to work it out, and when we're called to hold it down, we're supposed to do it with joy. And we run this race by looking at Jesus. Because Jesus, he's the best example to follow. Just as Jesus found joy by, by knowing that he'd be with the Father and with us, we find joy by being with Jesus and with the Father. But at the same time, although Jesus is the best example, he's more than an example. It says here he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And there are two ways we're called to run this race and work it out. The first way is simply looking at Jesus. Again, he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. We just set our eyes on him. We fix our eyes on him. 
Because he's the joy that's set before us. The joy of being with our sweet Jesus. The first way to just run this race and to run it with joy is by just simply looking at Jesus. And the second one is easy. Simply choosing joy. James 1-2, it says, Consider it a joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. He says, consider it a joy. Joy, it's a choice here. We choose to, to be joyful. But not only do we choose to be joyful, we choose to remain joyful. Joy is a choice. Joy isn't just when you feel all good after that high at the retreat or when you're laid out on the ground and you know, you're feeling the sweet presence of God. That's joy. Don't get me wrong, but joy is after that too. Joy is after you leave the retreat center, after you know, no one's laying hands on you anymore and you're just in the prayer closet. You're just spending time with Jesus. That's when you choose to remain joyful. Joy is a choice. And before I end, I want to ask you just two questions. So do people, both believers and non-believers, know you're a Christian because of the joy that you carry? When people see you, you know, coworkers, your classmates, you know, people on the, on, the, on the way here, do they know you're a Christian because of the joy that you carry? Because if not, something's wrong. Or is the only reason people know you're a Christian because you go to church and not because of the joy that you carry? Even the people in this room, do they know you're a Christian just because you're here in the service or you're here on Sunday service or is it because of the joy that you carry? As Christians, we're called to be marked by his joy. And that joy, again, it's a subterranean joy that goes deep in our hearts no matter what the surface looks like. You know, whether we're in that wilderness, whether we're, yeah, receiving a lot of rain or no rain at all, whether it's a drought, whatever it looks like on the surface, we're called to have that subterranean kind of joy deep in our hearts. We're believers who are marked by joy. Amen. Yeah, let's pray. Yeah, I feel like there's some of you in this room, whether you went to the retreat or not, that you're having a hard time choosing joy. Whether you got fired up, went to the retreat, and you experienced something entirely different when you came back, or whether you just feel like you're in that dry time, it's just been droughts, you know, no rain. however you're feeling, if you've had difficulty in choosing joy, 
not just choosing to be joyful, but choosing to remain joyful. If that's you, I want you to stand. Our Lord says that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And when God's people come together like this, God can't help but to be drawn to it. And his presence is here in this place tonight. So Lord, we just pray right now for the fullness of your presence to come. Lord, for every person standing, that you may touch them with your sweet joy, with your sweet presence, oh God. Lord, we declare in this room that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Lord, we declare that in your presence there's fullness of joy. So come, Holy Spirit, come. And Lord, we set our eyes on Jesus tonight. We set our eyes on you, beautiful Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Lord, you are seated at the right hand of God right now. And Lord, we set our eyes on you. And God, we thank you that you say that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. And Lord, we choose to fix our eyes on you. We choose to remain our eyes on you. So Lord, I lift up every person standing here, no matter what season they're in, that, Lord, rivers of living water will flow in them right now, Lord. That subterranean kind of joy, Father, no matter what goes on on the surface, no matter what shaking comes, Father, that there's a deep river of joy inside of them. For, Lord, when you turned water into wine, you told the world that everything I do is marked by joy. Everything you do is marked by joy. Lord, we want to live like that. We are called to live like that. I just pray that blessing and that grace upon every person standing right now. Now, Lord, when they leave this place, they're not just going to say this is a good word, but they're going to leave changed. Because whenever we encounter a living God, and whenever we're in your presence, Father, Lord, we experience your joy. And we can't help but be changed. Let's pray your fresh grace and your fresh joy, Father over every person standing. Yeah, for everyone else, let's just pray for more of the presence to come in this place. The fire, the joy that you experienced at the retreat, it wasn't just limited there. The church today, it's not limited by stones, but it's living stones. Let's pray. Let's just press in for more of the presence right now. Let's pray, Lord, we want the fullness of your presence. We want your joy to rest in this place. Let's pray as a body right now.
presence, there's fullness of joy. And Lord, we just pray, Lord, that you inhabit the place. God, we just pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Father, we thank you that you call us to run a race. And you call us to run it with endurance, Father. And Lord, although it may be agonizing at times, although it may feel so hard at times, God, Lord, we thank you that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And God, we thank you that we're not alone. That, Lord, we have a cloud of witnesses, of men and women of faith who are cheering us on. But more than that, God, we have an intercessor, and his name is Jesus. And Lord, we just decide today that we're going to set our eyes on you again. Lord, we set our eyes on you. And we remember the cross. We remember what you did for us at Calvary. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The joy that you had, O Lord of knowing that you'd be with us and how you were able to overcome the cross and say it was nothing. That kind of joy, Lord, give us that joy tonight. Give us that joy tonight, Father. Lord, we've already possessed it, but Lord, we want more of it. Give it to us, Lord, in a greater degree. This is our prayer. This is our confession, God. Lord, if we're called to change nations, if we're called to reach to the ends of the earth, we need your joy, your everlasting joy, rivers of living joy deep in our hearts, oh God. Rise it up, Lord, in our hearts right now. I call it forth right now in Jesus' name. Rivers of living water, rivers of joy, flow right now. Flow right now in Jesus' name. Because, Lord, the joy that you give us, it's not just for us. But it's to set the captives free. It's for us to have that Isaiah 61 anointing, Father. Give us that joy, Father. An oil of gladness. An oil of joy instead of mourning. May we be a people marked by joy. Thank you, Father. Thank you, sweet Jesus.